Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Excuse me, why are all these people standing in line and staring at their phones? We're all watching the live feed of the Proctor Silex special event in North Carolina. See, there's the press gathering in the convention center. In just a few seconds, Michael Moorcroft, the CEO, will make the big announcement. The rumor is he'll have Beyonce with him. And why are you all in line? 30 minutes after that, the 9.0 goes on sale. The 9.0 what? Toaster! Tell me the Proctor Silex 9.0 Bread Roaster Roller Coaster 4 Poster Humble Boaster Toaster with 4.7 inch display and 401 pixel heating coil coverage. You're in line for a toaster. No, we're, we're in line for a paradigm shift. You know, the, the 9.0 is going to fundamentally alter the way we live, and Beyonce is going to simultaneously announce her own line of pre-sliced frozen banana bread, which will automatically start printing out on every 3D printer in North America. And that bread, when toasted in the 9.0, will rise silently like the leopard beast in the Book of Revelations. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. We've turned into a society that worships new hardware and avidly watches the kinds of cheap, glossy product rollouts that corporations used to beg the press to cover. We don't line up for Beatles albums or Springsteen tickets or even Harry Potter books. Art is dead. The machines have won. They're in our homes printing out celebrity banana bread we didn't even ask for. So you're not even interested in the cranial interface attachment? The what? This is the first ever wearable toaster. You can have it on your head on cold days, so, you know, when you make toast, it keeps your ears warm. It can do that? Yes, it can. And what's more, it can... Hey, no cutsies! This dude is trying to cut in line. Let's beat him up with our defunct and useless 8.0 toaster chargers, which will definitely not fit the new one. Today on The Scramble, the Apple and U2 partnership, the lessons of War of the Worlds, the dangers of the bro hug, and the recurring problem of money in Connecticut politics. And now, today begins his one-year quest to hug each of the eagles, Colin McEnroe. That's right. Watch out, Don Henley. You're first, okay? I'm going to hug every eagle. Uh, that'll be the last thing we talk about today. We do have a—boy, I get tired just listening to that list of topics. This is our first day back. After a one-week break, the first time we've even done that in 13 months. So excuse me for any disorientation I exhibit, but I think we'll be fine here. And uh, in, in order to sort of get us started, we've got a great super guest here. Ben, ben Nadav Haffrey is uh, rejoining us. He's been with us before. He's the music editor for Mike, which used to be Policy Mike, and a freelance writer on media and technology. He's also a folk rock musician in the band Stonewall. So a lot of different ways to go uh, with Ben. But we're going to begin with, uh, as uh, you perhaps divined from listening to that introduction. Uh, what happened earlier uh, this month? It's still September, right? Yeah. Earlier this month. So Apple does these rollouts where, I mean, I, and I have to say, I'm always shocked. I, I was, I think I was tweeting about the fact that we were about to do something on our show or something that we were about to put on the radio that was worth listening to. And like a guy tweets back to me and says, sorry, but I'm going to be busy. <laughs> and, and like, isn't everybody? And it turned out the way, reason he was going to be busy, he was going to be watching this thing, this live thing where they talk about this new P3 
piece of hardware that they're selling. You know, I mean, it's a phone commercial, uh, but it also involved this unusual partnership with you, too. So Ben is going to um, walk us through all that. First of all, Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So um, let's just sort of begin with that sort of idea of hardware is the new software. I mean, not that this is a very new idea. This whole this whole process has been unfolding over probably about a decade that people don't get in line. I mean, I'm so old, I remember people getting in line for Beatles albums. Uh, people don't get in line for stuff like that. They get in line for hardware and they watch these media events that and, and they and it's fun for them, right? It's if you're into these Apple products, you want to be part of this thing where you watch this live unveiling of what ultimately <laughs> Ultimately, it's still, you know, just kind of a device you're going to buy. Yeah. Well, so to be fair, when we say them, I also avidly watched the keynote uh, in part because I knew U2 was going to do something. But it's addictive in some way um, to see this glossy new technology that, you know, everyone, you know, is going to have within a year. Um, And there's something to be said for the pageantry and how Apple has perfected that keynote strategy since 1984 when uh, Steve Jobs did it for the first time with the unveiling of the Macintosh. Um, so I don't think it's a I don't think it's a totally vapid event at all. I just think it's it's interesting to see how totally entrepreneurs or tech company CEOs have become the new rock stars to the point where Tim Cook is a year younger than Bono, and he isn't even mocked for calling the Apple Watch the iWatch after after his event. Like he can make similar blunders and just not be culpable in the same way that Bono is. It's way easier to make a rock star look ridiculous than a CEO. Um, because we revere them far more. But, you know, as somebody who's A, a critic, and B, a creator of content, I mean, if we're, if we're going to just sort of define content or substitute the word software for content, but as somebody who creates art and writes about art, are you a little bit troubled by the preeminence of the thing on which the art plays and is distributed? I mean, what could make as big a splash as... Uh, as an iPhone six or an iWatch or whatever the hell it's called, I mean, what yeah. you know, what piece of art could do that at this point? Uh, I'm not sure it's possible for music right now to have. It, I don't think music can capture the zeitgeist in the same way as technology can, uh, and that's just a question of cultural faith and what you believe can change your life most effectively. If it's and and what you think changing your life actually means, so it does trouble me that people would want efficiency and sort of a svelte new product more so than they would want an album that could potentially answer spiritual questions or personal questions or provide something richer than mere entertainment. I think when you say content, you're describing software as content and also music as content. That's telling. It's, you know, music is not content. It's art. Uh, And software similarly can be art, but more pixels on an iPhone screen or a screen so big that you know, I read a personal essay where someone actually dropped it on their face while trying to tweet in bed because their thumbs couldn't stretch sufficiently. <laughs> uh, that's just that's not something to be so excited about, in my opinion. Um, and I think what was most striking for me about the U2 album release, you know, it was came out on September 9th at the end of the keynote uh, and was instantly distributed to 500 million people in 119 countries, which is a massive release. And it costs these people nothing to listen to the album. And, you know, with a 40-year history of making great music occasionally, and occasionally making really terrible music, that's the thing about U2 is they try so hard on every release, and nine times out of ten they fall flat on their face, and then every once in a while there's a Joshua Tree or an Octung Baby. 
but the fact that people weren't even willing to download and listen to the free album, that if you watched the speed with which people were responding to the album release on Twitter or writing articles about it and releasing them via social media, uh, it's pretty apparent that people weren't really listening to it. And the same thing is apparent from the criticism of it, which by and large tended to be very lazy. It was sort of this gut reaction against you two for believing that that many people would care about them. Let's hear but just, the let's, same. Yeah. Well, let's hear just a little bit of the U2 thing so we know what we're talking about. And we'll start with the one that I think you're the most interested in, and that's uh, Iris. Let's hear a little bit of that. But it's not an illusion. The A in my heart is so much a part of who I am. All right. So um, before we even get to the merits uh, of this, um, it, it, I think it is just to go back to the language you were using originally, Ben. I mean, if there is an artist, if there is a band that people have talked about, at least within the last 15 years, as being able to change your life, change a lot of people's lives, change people's perspectives, you two at its best. I, I think that's sort of, you know, the kind of status that they occupied uh, at certain times. And I, I, I do remember, and it's sort of interesting that this whole rollout happened September 9th. I do remember September 11th, the September 11th, that their music, songs like Grace, you know, really, I, I, I sort of thought, boy, if there was one musical artist who, it's not that they saw it coming, but but somehow or other were intellectually and spiritually preparing us for some of the adjustments that we'd have to make emotionally and spiritually at the time of September 11th. It was really U2, and I'm not even that big a U2 yeah. fan, but I, I thought, wow, these guys, they sort of got, you know, in, in a weird, prescient way what was about to happen. Um, but I just, now they have to make this kind of devil's bargain. Now, maybe they don't have to, but they choose to make this devil's bargain in order to stay relevant. Is that what some of the backlash against them is about? Yeah, I absolutely think that's the case. And, well, to your point about September 11th especially, I think a quintessential U2 moment is when they played the Super Bowl uh, the year following September 11th. Mm. And that was about a year after uh, they released Beautiful Day and the album that came with it. Mm -hmm. And Bono sort of emerged from the crowd singing Beautiful Day, which was a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. um, and then they played Where the Streets Have No Name. And they actually projected the names of the victims from 9-11 on this, this cloth tower behind them while they sang the song. And then during the climax of the song, the tower fell and they were playing on a, a heart-shaped stage. And the lights sort of flared up and Bono sprinted around the stage. And then at the end of it, he, he took off his jacket and it, was, it had a, an American flag lining on the inside of it. Mm -hmm. So those are, just, those, are the, those are the facts of that performance. That's objectively ridiculous. Yeah, they might have overplayed uh, their hand a little bit there. Right. But so the, the, yeah, exactly. And the fact is, though, I get chills every time I watch that performance. That's an example of something they did that could have been as loathed as the rollout via the, the iPhone. 
Uh, but it, it wasn't because they had the music to back it up. Like they could actually make you feel the kind of faith that they were putting forward. So this is a similar step of faith for them where they're trying to make you believe in you too or make you believe in what music can do for you. And in some sense, they're ridiculously in your face. But when you have Where the Streets Have No Name, it's easy to believe them. And when you have Songs of Innocence, which is a good album but not a great album, it's a little bit harder to believe them, I think. Well, it's part and, of it. And, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Right. So, and, and then to your point, I think it is this kind of Apple and U2 are seen as similar in some ways. They're both superstars from the 1980s, mega corporations. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think there is something to be said for U2 having this kind of corporate partnership um, where people just see them as selling out in some way. But What's important to remember is U2 doesn't need to sell out. They don't, I'm sure, I could guarantee you almost that they don't really care about the money from the Apple deal. It's not even clear how much they've been paid, but it's a sizable deal overall. Um, More than anything, YouTube from the beginning has been about getting their music to as many people as possible. And especially now when there's this crisis in distribution and no one gets music from one source anymore or gets the same music, this was their best shot at sort of causing a stir. And I think they're hoping to ride this into a new technology that Apple's going to release for the music industry. But, you know, one of the questions that then came up, I think, was who's got a devil's bargain with whom? Because, you know, we all, we collectively have this devil's bargain with Apple. And then when this thing shows up, I mean, one of the things that it reminded me when this thing, that's an unattractive way to put it, when this U2 release kind of shows up unbidden, one of the things that it reminded me a little bit of, remember when um, with the Kindle there were copyright problems with uh, with some uh, things that were in the Kindle? And I think one of them actually was by George Orwell, too, which was kind of hilarious. <laughs> And and Kindle, Amazon was able just to pull that stuff right off, right? It just it, right. it was there, and then it was gone. And I think right. a lot of people who own Kindles thought, really, they could do that? They could just go in and take things out that are in? And, and what exactly is my relationship? And I didn't read the terms of service because they're way too long and the print's too small. And, you know, what kind of relationship am I in with this company? And, and I right. wonder if this thing, even though it was – basically an act of generosity, kick that same kind of tripwire. Like, what kind of devil's bargain am I in when I get stuff that I didn't ask for? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually, it's the exact same thing as that Kindle incident that you're referring to. It's the same in, in the terms of agreement. You, It's clear that Apple can do exactly what they did, and they can even remove things from your library if they're no longer able to provide them um, or prevent you from downloading them, things like that. So this is, insofar as it's a devil's bargain, it's something that we've been doing unwittingly for a while. This just had the sort of unfortunate privilege of coming about a month after the celebrity photo leak um, via iCloud, when there are already a lot of security concerns about about Apple services. Um, and this is just tapping into even broader conversations about privacy on technologies that Apple doesn't even touch, like social media sites. Uh, so I think this was really... It was a gaffe in some ways because they they really didn't prepare people for it and they didn't address some concerns like some users have automatic downloading set up so it went straight into their into their phones as opposed to waiting for them to take it from the cloud. Things like that they definitely should have anticipated. Um, and I do think that it's playing into a broader cultural fear about what these technologies have access to and who we're trusting to protect our information. Um, let's just hear one more cut from um, from from the U2 album for those of you who didn't get it unbidden. You know, you've, you've been able to stay off the grid enough or not update, update your iTunes version so you didn't get it. Let's hear uh, California, which is a little bit more of a, a pop sound. 
You know, uh, Ben Nadef Hafri, one of the things you talked about is sort of the analogy between you two and Apple uh, in the sense, yeah, uh, both kind of uh, media giants uh, that started up in the 1980s. And the other challenge that they face together is they have to morph enough to stay relevant. They have to change enough to stay relevant. But they also can't get so far away from their roots uh, that they alienate their core followers. And so it's kind of interesting to listen to you two do this. I mean, it really is a bit of an homage, that song, to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys right at the beginning. It's just, you know, totally a Beach Boys beat there. And then kind of, you know, a little bit of uh, a bow to the left coast, which is also kind of not not where you two was 15 years ago. Right. And actually, what's really interesting about that song, um, they've been working on this album and other albums. Bono said that nobody's deleted more U2 songs in the last five years than the four men in U2. Um, They've been trying for five and a half years to make this album, and they've actually been working with Danger Mouse, who's a really famous modern producer. Uh, He's behind bands like Gnarls Barkley, Broken Bells. Um, He made the famous Grey Album, which is a mashup of Jay-Z's Black Album with the Beatles' White Album. It's It's a pretty great listen. Uh, but you can really hear his influence on that song, where it's a classic U2 chorus. It has the woes, and it, it's a really – it even has a classic Bono line, like, there's no one to grief. That's how I know there's no one to love. Um, but it also has these D- Danger Mouse synthesizers on it, which you'd never hear on another U2 record. And I think that's what's admirable both about the Apple Watch and also about the new U2 record, which is that they're really trying to hold on to – what makes them special to people while continuing to innovate. Because ultimately, it's not about more pixels. It's about a new piece of technology. And it's not about writing the same songs on the Joshua Tree again. It's about totally what you two used to say, dream it all up again. You know, it's moving from the Joshua Tree to Octang Baby, which are totally unrecognizable albums, but still have this core U2-ness about them. Uh, and I do think that's sort of a it's, a... it's a powerful lesson for musicians and also corporations about holding on to what makes you great while continuing to innovate. We're talking to Ben Nadav Hafri. Uh, he's the music editor for Mike. That's MIC. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Sherry Quickmeyer. She's the executive director of Common Cause Connecticut about sort of what's uh, happened with money in uh, politics on, on this election cycle. Uh, also, we're going to talk to Henry Alford, a humorist uh, and author of Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? He had a great article uh, about the bro hug uh, and the way President Obama and Jay Carney got uh, caught in a bad one, but sort of the politics and manners of hugging that'll be coming up later. Uh, ben, we have a sort of second topic we want to talk about with you, but it's linked. It's it, if I think it's linked without having to force it too much. We talk about this notion of content invading a device, all right? So the, the content of YouTube, YouTube, the art of YouTube uh, invading the devices people have in their pockets and, and briefcases. Um, in 1938, um, something else happened, and that was the War of the Worlds broadcast created by Orson Welles. Actually, let's hear just a, a little of the beginning of that to, just to set the stage. Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. 
We know now that as human beings busy themselves about... Well, we, we don't have time to play the whole thing for you. Anyway, you get really scared and you'd panic. you start running around in the streets. Yeah, exactly. Um, everyone would freak out. We everyone can't risk it. absolutely lose it, even though there was that nice introduction and stuff. And there are questions to this day, Ben, about how much there, how much of a real panic there was in America, how exactly. many people saw it. There, there's, you know, a sort of a myth that's built up that, you know, people were absolutely going berserk when I think, you know, the truth is... Fewer people uh, were unsettled and disturbed and maybe calling each other and saying, what's going on here? But so how does this interest you and how how do you connect it to what we were talking about before? Well, so I think the primary connection is that these are both obsessions of mine. Mm -hmm. The War of the Worlds broadcast is something I've researched for a while. U2 is something I've grown up – as a band I've grown up with. Uh, I think what interests me most about War of the Worlds and the reason I've I've been working on a project about it for a while uh, is just that – it's exactly what you said. The panic is exaggerated. So the number is 1.2 million people heard it and panicked. That's actually based on a study run by CBS that estimated something, uh, interviewed something like 960 people. Uh, and then from there, by the newspapers and by one particular social psychologist who wanted to make a name for himself, it was just blown terribly out of proportion because it's a great story. Um, so there are a lot of questions about the scale of the panic, but what I think is most interesting is how long it's been plausible to us that this event actually happened, that it's, it's a really campy story that people in America would panic about a Martian invasion, and yet people tend to be pretty uncritical about it. Um, and I think the reason is because it actually set in motion, it, it really crystallized this whole set of ideas about technology and media and how it relates to your personal life that are still in play today, right up until, you know, Apple releasing a YouTube album directly into your iTunes. Uh, War of the Worlds is a play about invasion and fears about radio, especially during the war, were fears about a mental invasion. You know, if you could imagine a play just from hearing it, what would happen if a dictator got a hold of American radio or if the government soured or something like that? Well, you know, I, and I think uh, just to go to sort of a little Richard Dawkins on this for a second. So so what we're, what you're talking about is a meme that's persisted. It's persisted in the teeth of the truth. You know, I mean, right. the, the truth is a little bit different than what the meme is. The meme is people heard this thing. They didn't understand what it was uh, and they freaked out and 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 all kinds of consequences. Maybe even people died and stuff. And that's so that's the meme. It's not necessarily the truth. Panic. Yeah. But so Dawkins would say, well, why did the meme persist? You know, what what's what's its usefulness? Well, it's a really interesting story. It's a lively story. It's a hokey story. But clearly it kicks certain kinds of tripwires, too. And and if you really wanted to get, you know, evolutionary about it, you'd say, well, maybe it's an adaptive thing to think is that you should be a little suspicious of what comes out of one of these devices. You know, you shouldn't accept it as face value. You should evaluate it in the light of other knowledge that you have. You should cross check it against reality. I mean, that's like kind of a useful folktale for us to tell over and over again that one time in 1938, everybody got fooled. Right. And and that was sort of in the best interests of the people studying it. I mean, social psychology was sort of a ridiculous field in the 1930s, and they wanted a piece of the war action too, all of the social psychologists. So they were looking for a way to demonstrate to the broader population that they could materially impact people's lives during the war or help the war effort. And the way they did that is by studying radio and creating these big ideas about how technology could influence your mind and how important it was to have a really strong democracy-promoting radio network in America and how important it was to to teach citizens, like you were saying, to discern between fiction and reality. Um, and that's that was sort of blown way out of proportion 
uh, it was something that even radio networks were embracing. They were using all the pseudoscientific language to promote the idea that it could really influence your mind as a technology because they wanted people to believe that they could do real good for the country too so that they would keep getting funding. Um, but it, it does sort of tap into this real fear of having any sort of foreign presence, you know, if, whether it's an Apple Watch or whether it's a, a radio in your living room, something that close to you that, that you can't quite control, that, that provides access from somewhere outside into your into your home your most personal life uh so i do think that's why the stories persisted in some in some ways it's a fable but it's still how we think about technology as having more control over us than we realize or being invasive in some way all right well that's a perfect place uh, to end our conversation not that i wouldn't enjoy keeping our conversation going for another half hour but ben nadav haffrey great to talk to you uh, always great to hear your ideas music editor for mike we're going to go out not with you two, but with I think the band that's kind of the next thing after you two. That's Stonewall. <laughs> this is Ben's band. All right. Next on The Scramble, we're going to talk about money and politics and about um, how well Connecticut's citizen election program, the campaign finance reform uh, system that was in the public financing system, system that was somewhat ironically <laughs> enacted after the first round of problems with Governor John Rowland. Uh, I mean, this the system we have now is something of a response to the Rowland corruption of 2004. Anyway, before we get to that, let me just do a few quick housekeeping things so I don't forget. So this is going to be a very, very busy week for us, and we hope that uh, you'll follow us uh, along into this world of busyness. So tomorrow night, just to remind you, if you're a fan of this show, you are invited uh, to a party at Infinity Music Hall in Hartford. Um, it's the brand new Infinity Music Hall. It celebrates our fifth anniversary as a show. Uh, we'll all be there. All of your favorite, as many of your favorite uh, show characters, uh, people from the news, etc., uh, will be there. Um, we're going to have music from Grayson Hugh and Polly Messer. Eh, we might ask you to sing too. Um, we're going to have prizes um, and snacks. I say snacks. You won't get dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so either eat beforehand or plan on eating on one of the many exciting new restaurants in Front Street afterwards. But anyway, it's great. Oh, and there, there's going to be a new thing, uh, which is a Dress Like Bill Curry contest. So if you can get together an ensemble that's a blue blazer, a blue shirt, a red tie, khaki pants, and brown shoes, you can enter the Dress Like Bill Curry contest, and you can win something really great. And we're going to give more than one award, too. So, you know. Uh, I mean, a lot of people win prizes, assuming that anybody does this at all. But So anyway, that's tomorrow night. If you want to go, you need to check out wnpr.org slash events. Or if you want to go straight to the place where you do need to go to reserve a place, it costs five whole dollars, um, go to eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E dot com, dot com, dot com, eh, whatever. If go to Eventbrite and then just type my name in and the event will come up and stuff like that. Or you can just do it at WNPR slash event. Okay. Um, then uh, what's the other thing? Oh, then the next night, if you don't go to the party but you still feel like you need to get out of the house, uh, the next night we're going to be live at the Watkinson School. This is a, a forum called Just Teach. We have a terrific panel of thinkers about education and teachers and 
uh, well, I, I'm not going to name them all right now, but they, this is a ter- it's and it's a, not a conversation about education. In fact, I don't even want to use the e word. I want to talk about teaching and learning and school and students and teachers. Like, what what if you got past all this policy crap that we just keep drowning in all the time and just talked about re- what real teaching is and what real learning is? So that's that conversation. It's preceded by a dinner, which you're invited to, kind of a nice casual little buffet dinner, great food there at Watkinson, and then at seven o'clock we're in the hall. If you want to go to that, go to Watkinson.org. That's their website. Look for our freshly squeezed series there. We'd love to have you there, um, and we'll be making a show or part of a show out of that. Okay, that's all the housekeeping. Uh, let's move on. Sherry Quickmire is joining us uh, from Connecticut Common Cause. Uh, first of all, Sherry, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Sherry, Thanks for inviting me. Oh, great to have you. Sherry Quickmire, Executive Director of Common Cause Connecticut. So, um, as you heard me say a few minutes ago, um, you know, really kind of in the wake of the Roland scandals, Connecticut did enact this public financing system, uh, and, and it's really kind of a model in the nation still. It's one of the one of the templates that, that campaign finance reform groups and clean elections groups and people like that look to as a way to do this. Except that as I'm watching this gubernatorial race unfold, I just see all these, you know, post-Citizens United independent expenditures flowing in. And effectively, from my, you know, starry-eyed point of view, uh, uh, just infecting and contaminating <laughs> this campaign. So first of all, uh, lift me out of my funk, Sherry. Tell me that why I shouldn't be depressed, why I shouldn't be looking at this and thinking, well, the whole thing is a sham and a mockery and a travesty. Well, <laughs> Well, um, I would say that I don't think it is. I would say that I think that uh, the the rates of participation by candidates in the state elections, uh, constitutional um, candidates and gubernatorial, as well as state house and state senate, have have increased every single cycle. So we are looking at somewhere around 90% of those running for office in the state of Connecticut are participating in the program. So I think that's a really good thing. And I think that that is a testament to the fact that that many people still see this as an opportunity to run for office who might not have had that opportunity previously and uh, because they weren't independently wealthy or they didn't have a whole lot of friends with deep pockets. And I think that that we can say that this is still still really important. But I think that you're right on some accounts that um, we need to be looking at how it is that we can make sure that the outside money that's coming in uh, does not overshadow everything else about the program. And so, and that that's the question. All right. So, what were we trying to accomplish in the first place? Well, we were trying to accomplish trying to get a system where you sort of knew how campaigns were paid for, and right. that you know, presumably afterwards, people candidates who who won elections were not incredibly beholden to a lot of people who financially had made the campaign possible. I mean, that you know, back after the Roland scandals in two thousand four, Common Cause. Um, published some report called like the road to hell was paved with campaign contributions or something, but just sort of showing basically it was called something like that. Um, you know, showing like how much legal money had flowed into John Rowland and what those donors had gotten for it. Um, and, and so that's one of the things we wanted to, to snap, right? That connection between, you know, the unspoken quid pro quo that if you give a lot of money, 
to, to, to uh, a political campaign and your candidate wins somewhere down the road as a result of unspoken agreements, you're, you're going to be in a better position to get a state contract, a paving contract or, or something like that. But now be, with these independent expenditures, money coming in through PACs, money coming in through Democratic and Republican governors associations, have we solved any of that problem? I mean, is it less likely anyway that a, a winning candidate feels beholden to somebody who gave money that way? Well, I think that that uh, it's always been the case that candidates could raise money for political parties and that political parties could spend money on candidates. And and uh, so that's not exactly new and different. Um, but what is the most, I think, troubling is the secret money that comes mm-hmm. in from groups that we don't know exactly who they are. We don't know exactly how much they're spending. They tend to wait until the very last minute and then spend spend heavily, and uh, that is extremely problematic. I mean, regular voters, people like you and me, just don't happen to know where all that money is coming from. And these sort of sham groups are thrown up with very cute, patriotic-sounding names that um, – accept money and then turn around and spend money. And that's the problem. I would rather know where the money comes from than than not. And, and my fear, Sherry, also is, so let's imagine that I am a, a, a semi-unscrupulous paving contractor. Uh, I'm the CEO of Wolf and Kaplan Paving. And so what I do is I go to one of these sham groups. It's called Tomorrow for a Better Connecticut Tomorrow. And, and I give them this essentially unrestricted money, which the campaign that ultimately benefits from it is not allowed to know about. There can't be any coordination between right. Tomorrow and Connecticut for a Better Tomorrow and campaign X, candidate X. But what worries me down the line is, I mean, what I would plan to do as that unscrupulous paving contractor is when candidate X gets elected, go, by the way, remember tomorrow for a better Connecticut tomorrow? Well, I gave X amount of money to that. You know, and I would assume the law doesn't prevent me from subsequently when the election is over, taking off my mask and cape and saying who I am. Right. Well, that's that's incredibly problematic. And I think we need to have much more strict coordination laws and expectations. And I think that you're right. I think that there is a possibility that um, that groups are trying to curry favor with various candidates and that 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 you know that is going to that is a flaunting of the law you're absolutely right i mean the example of northeast utilities you know the the uh, ceo encouraging his employees to you know to contribute i mean examples like that um tom foley's think tank that just you know appeared and then you know then information was used to support his campaign so i think there are examples on both sides where there are really on the edge kinds of uh, fundraising going going on so is a last question here for our sherry quickmeyer executive director of common cause connecticut is, so is the solution uh, will you guys just be pursuing more legislation on this and obviously down the road nationally you'd like to overturn citizens united but i mean is there are there ways uh, to to write better laws here even at the state level? Or is it more or less you guys in black and white striped shirts and whistles just running up and down the <laughs> sidelines? Uh, you saying, uh-uh, look what you're doing right there. I see right. that. Right. Well, I, I, as, as appealing as that is, I would say that I think we need to have 
stronger disclosure laws that actually get more information and make it available to regular voters who don't have to plow their way through elections enforcement's website or anybody else's but that they can actually see that all that money that comes into these various super PACs to support or attack the, you know, various candidates is being raised by, spent by, you know, whomever it is. And people should be able to know that. And I think that we also just need to make sure that we think about how it is that candidates possibly in the future can raise additional money um, after qualifying, there are possibilities in other states. They're looking at how to do this, and it would require taking off the expenditure cap in the various races and allowing candidates to get a multiple match, perhaps, from the state, which, of course, then requires additional resources from unclaimed, the unclaimed asset fund. But, but we, I think we need to be thinking about this um, because we're not looking at changing the the Supreme Court composition uh, immediately, nor are we looking to amend the state, the U.S. Constitution right away, which I think ultimately, yes, we would like to see that happen. Of course. Well, listen, uh, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to thank Sherry. We did get a tweet from New Haven. Malloy and Foley should take the people's pledge to cut down on outside spending, a la Brown and Warren in 2012 Massachusetts Senate race. That's a, another way to go. Uh, we're going to come back. Thanks to Sherry. We're going to come back with a final conversation about the bro hug. I didn't realize this, but apparently people don't shake hands anymore. They do the bro hug. I will not do the bro hug. got the new 9.0 bread roaster roller coaster four poster humble boaster toaster with 4.7 inch display and 401 pixel heating coil coverage and i used it to toast the new beyonce gluten-free bagel banana bread baguette and my life hasn't changed at all stupid technology today's show was produced by betsy kaplan and me our interns are jackie filson and josh nalea Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by The Edge. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff hugging a big ol' ham, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, stories of two very different dance and music halls. And now, back to Colin. That, I, I'm glad that's coming to light, because I've been told the Faith Middleton Show staff, they do that just about every day. They get the biggest old ham they can find, and they all just hug it. Uh, and that's apparently part of some kind of trend. Uh, one of our favorite uh, humor writers, one of our favorite uh, writers about uh, manners and mores is Henry Alford. Uh, his uh, newest book is a book about manners. I don't know if it's his newest book. I'm going to say it is. Uh, would it kill you to stop doing that? Uh, he writes for The New York Times, Vanity Fair, and other publications. And he recently wrote about this phenomenon of in, in which the hug is ascendant, the handshake is descendant, uh, but the hug comes with all kinds of problematic component parts and uh, people who are either more or less willing to do this hugging. So I don't know, Henry Alford, I go away for one week to Canada. I come back and uh, handshakes are gone and, and they've been replaced by hugs. What's happening here? It's a whole new world, Colin. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'm not sure I want to live in this whole new world. Well, now, one of the precipitating events here, I mean, you and I are both maybe uh, of the appropriate age to remember uh, um, a political event in which uh, Sammy Davis hugged Richard Nixon from behind. And this was caught by a photographer. And Richard Nixon really looked like he was the first it was the first time in his life he'd either, either been hugged or perhaps assaulted from behind. I don't know. It was, it was a big thing for him anyway. You could tell he wasn't ready for it. He had this kind of frozen smile on his face. And that was considered the most awkward political hug for many decades to come. But one of the reasons you've jumped into these waters is because of a hug that President Obama did. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Right. His press secretary, Jay Carney, left, um, I believe it was in March. And a uh, buzz, the website BuzzFeed did sort of a breakdown of the hug in a series of pictures and called it the most awkward hug in White House history. Because um, there was some misunderstanding as to whether they were going to shake hands or hug, and it led to, it, it appears that Mr. Carney is kissing Obama's shoulder at one point, um, which causes the president to, quote-unquote, bro-yank Carney's head and then give him a, a, a little flash of side eye. Well, it, it seems to me that, you know, particularly with this phrase bro hugging, that there are sort of two cultures that are kind of coming together here. One of them is bro culture, which is, I think, aggressively and sometimes even assaultively heterosexual. Um, and also this notion, which you explore in your article, that maybe our rising comfort with gay culture makes everybody more comfortable with hugging, or at least less uncomfortable with male-to-male hugging. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've seen the hugginess in teenagers going back like eight or nine years. You know, a lot of high schools had to ban hugging in hallways because it was just getting too, too heavy. Um, in, you, you know, the Tier Hall Pass was, was leading to all sorts of furtive, lingering, lingering, and it made everyone uncomfortable. But now, yeah, it seems to be amongst men, primarily heterosexual men, yeah, that a lot of them are exchanging um, what heretofore would have been a handshake for, with a hug, um, and it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, you know, by the way, Wolfie, uh, Betsy, we need to get a sound effect for maybe just like a little bell, like a little uh, – the bell would be for uh, whenever we find something that we can blame on millennials, which is something that we really like to do on this show. If we can find Absolutely. a way to blame something on those damn millennials. Um, and so it looks like this hugging thing. If that's true about the high schools and they had to make rules and stuff like that, that's millennials. Millennials did this, Henry. Exactly. Once again, their narcissism triumphs. Well, you know, as a manners expert, as somebody as 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 America's go-to guy about manners, Henry Alford, is there a code develop? I mean, let me just let me put it a different way. Okay, so um, I was just in Montreal for a few days, and in Montreal there are a lot of people who speak French, and there are also a lot of people who live there who speak English. And I watched them. I don't know if there's a name for this moment, but there's a thing where they look at each other for a split second before they start talking, and they take a guess. You know, are you mainly an English speaker? Or are you mainly a French speaker? And, you know, right. and they're remarkably good at it too. I mean, a lot of times they just nail it. They know which language to start talking in. And and um, and I wonder if we could do that with hugging somehow, because, I mean, if I'm a handshaker and you're a hugger, you know, I mean, if we don't know that, then it's just going to be Carney and Obama over and over again uh, until civilization collapses. It's true. It's true. Well, I mean, some people, 
particularly, I'm, go- I'm going to guess the British, would look at it from a status point of view that the older person or the more venerable person <laughs> is going to, uh, you know, is, go- is driving the train. Um, and then it, between people who are of the same status, I guess you're looking for whoever starts first. And, <laughs> yeah, if, there, if, if, if it isn't clear, then it's just a no man's land, and that's where it gets ugly. But let me press you on this a little bit, because you are sort of the Academy of Francaise about this stuff. If you say something, it's going to take on the quality of social code. So let's, oh be, let's be sure we don't say something reckless here, Henry, that we have to live with. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, another argument you could make is that the, the more, I mean, I don't know what Judith Martin would say about this, and, 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 and who cares anyway. Um, the, um, but she might say, well, the more reticent person should prevail. In other words, if if uh, if I want to shake hands and you want a hug, I should win just because I shouldn't be forced. If if we're going to assume that a hug is a more effusive and and all encompassing thing, yeah. I shouldn't be forced up a, a rung on the ladder from where I want to be. Yes, absolutely. As with you know, social kissing between a man and a woman, same thing. I, yeah, I think you cater to whoever right is has the more. Uh, has the less saliva-based um, <laughs> predilections. Um, well, you know, one of the things you describe, you describe in, in your article this encounter between this, and this was not a man-to-man hug, it was a man-to-woman hug, but a guy who, I don't know, they finished some big project at work or something, and he, he went to hug a woman who was part of the same team, and she, with both hands, like, just put her hands on his chest and pushed him away, right? Yeah, and didn't even say anything. And, <laughs> yeah, apparently whenever he sees her, that's all he can think of of course so yeah no we get people we get caught caught up in the moment and we think that a hug is the way to express the unity between us um but but that's not necessarily the case well there's all, so the, in, uh, there also needs to be then written into our social code some kind of cue that I mean, if in fact people cannot be trusted to make a you know reasonable evaluation of this, if people are going to lunge, and you you mentioned the fact Michelle Obama hugged Queen Elizabeth, which uh, apparently is a big no no, right? Yeah, because you don't touch Her Majesty. <laughs> you just keep, so I mean, so so that's that's so another. You want you want like a little flag or a pin to wear that that connotes. Whether whether or not you are a hugger. Well, you, you even raised, I think, or you you quoted somebody in the article things that you could say, maybe like if you see the hugger taking that half step toward you. Oh right, yeah. There are lots of things like you know the the test results haven't come back yet, <laughs> um, or I had a lot of garlic for lunch, or yeah, one woman I talked to, uh, Dr. Peggy Drexler. Um, she will put an object or a person between her and the serial hugger, because um, it's her it's her view that typically you know who who the serial huggers are, um, so that usually you you have a little advance warning. Betsy's suggesting uh, uh, you can drop your keys. To me, that might be kind of a mixed message, dropping your keys. Then they might pinch your ass. Right, exactly. You could have a whole Sammy Davis, Richard Nixon uh, situation. (laughs) I think never hug from behind. You know, that's that's even if it's even if it's a really close friend, you don't hug from behind and you don't whisper something darkly comic right right at the clinch. 
you know, I, I think that's going to that's going to raise flags. But, you know, there are some people listening to this who are saying, well, you know, this all sounds very I don't know. Like, what's so bad? What's so wrong with this? Maybe just people should open themselves up a little bit more. Maybe should pe- people should just welcome the hug. This is your own generational uptightness coming out. Yeah. No. And I hear them. And, and you know, I myself probably fall into that camp being a bit of a of a hugger. Um, but I was so surprised to find all of these people willing to tell me that, no, they're really uncomfortable with it. Um, and, and they don't want all this unnecessary touching, you know, that they love it with a with a friend or, or a trusted colleague or or family. But you know, the, this phenomenon, it's, it's happening amongst strangers, um, and that's where it gets a little sticky. Um, I, I will just offer one last thing to all this, which is um, I've tried to develop – I need a name for it, but I, it's sort of the reluctant hugging groan. What I do is like some guy, some friend of mine is uh, a hugger. I'll, I'll kind of go – Okay, we're gonna <laughs> hug. So I'm I'm still preserving a little, at least verbally. Yeah, I'm, I'm preserving something anyway. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what no. it is. I love it. I think that's great. And I think on you know on the flip side, us who are too huggy should be announcing, "I'm an inappropriate hugger coming in." Or I have saliva-based predilections. We have to go, Henry Alford. But that's a great phrase. I think it will live in either fame or infamy. Henry Alford, get his book. Would it kill you to stop doing that? Hugging, for example. If people are a problem and you find them hard to please Just throw your arms around them and give a little squeeze Hug it out, hug it out Bring your burdens to your bosom, hug it out In a world that's trapped in trouble, let a cuddle set you free Hug it out, hug it out, hug it out I'm Kyone Wolf. You know why I like hugs so much? Because hugs are like a boomerang. You always get it back. Come here. Uh, okay. Ow. Ow. Mm. Unlike a boomerang, sometimes it hits you on the head. Mm.